You're listening to the Small Business Talk podcast with Kathy Smith. Small Business Talk is a podcast for business owners and entrepreneurs who want a better way to run their businesses without spending years doing it the hard way. Small Business Talk is hosted by Kathy Smith, who has run the same marketing agency for more than 17 years and helped hundreds of business owners achieve their marketing goals. Welcome to Small Business Talk, episode 187. Today, my special guest is David Barnett. Welcome, David. Would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are and why you're here talking to the SPT audience? Sure. Uh, My name is David Barnett, and I've been working with small and medium-sized businesses for over 20 years, and I've been helping people to buy and sell businesses since 2008 initially as a business broker. And in the last five years, I've been working as a what I call a private transaction advisor. So I'm actually a coach or a consultant that helps someone through the process without taking an agency role. So it's a little bit of a different business model, but I still help people with buying or selling businesses. Fantastic. And I think today's topic is just perfect for that. So we're going to be talking about build a business that people want to buy. So I know a lot of people would like to sell their businesses, but do they really have a business or is it just a hobby? Oh, this is this is such a great topic because I'm asked all the time uh, by people who own a business and you know they they want to know the value of their business and and you know quite simply the value of a business relates to the cash flow that the business creates and we take that cash flow and we multiply it by a factor depending on the risks involved in your industry. And so this varies from one industry to another. But if someone's going to buy your business and they look at the cash flow and they figure out what this cash flow is worth to them, the second question they're going to ask themselves is, will this cash flow continue under my stewardship? Because they're going to wonder, are you the person with some special skills or ability or do you have special relationships that may not transfer to them when they buy the business. And so it's this second concern that's going to give someone pause, maybe reconsider their price or maybe reconsider whether they even want to do the deal at all. And simply put, the way that we overcome that problem is by showing people that we have systems, policies, procedures, checklists, all of the orderliness in the business that allows us to demonstrate that someone can actually learn how to operate it. It's not some secret skill or talent that the current owner has. Absolutely, and not being key person dependent. And I guess that also boils down to other key people in the business as well. If you don't have those systems and policies and you have a fantastic project manager or general manager or whatever that position is, if it can't run without them and their knowledge in their head, then once again, you don't really have a business. Well, you know, it's interesting. I can tell you a quick story. I helped a gentleman uh, buy a business in Oregon. And um, in this particular case, there was a a project leader who helped with the production. They were making custom assemblies of wire harnesses for machinery and equipment. And um, so the the buyer bought the business and he was an engineer who was well-suited to being the owner of this business. And the seller gave him some training and went away. And the project manager or team lead was involved in a car accident and unfortunately passed on. And they really didn't have any idea how he was organizing the jobs. So 
he was organized in his own way. He had his own systems on his computer, but when it came to his untimely passing, no one had access to it. And so it's, it's not just that, like you say, that you have different people doing different things, but there needs to be an organized system and it needs to be organized in an operations manual or a playbook. It's sometimes called where other people have access to it and can look into it when they need to, whether it's because someone departs from the company or someone's simply ill and a mission critical activity has to be undertaken that someone can go and look and see how it's done or, or see where, you know, different files or, or work orders are in their process. Yeah, absolutely. And even allowing that person to take holidays because we've, it's true. we've seen numerous cases where people have worked for literally years without a holiday because nobody really knows what they do and the job won't go on without them. And as we know, in the, the situations we've had in the last few years, that is not a good position to be in. Yeah, yes. And, and there's far too many small business owners who fall into that category of, you know, they, they don't really have a business that they're building that is able to function without them. They, they own a job and maybe they have helpers that help them be, become more efficient or help them get things done more quickly, but they don't delegate. Um, you know, one of the things that I heard a long time ago is that in small businesses, people often delegate tasks. So if you think of the auto shop owner telling someone, Hey, fix the brakes on that car, that's delegating a task. Whereas in bigger businesses, leaders delegate responsibilities. And so this would be akin to the auto shop owner putting one of the employees in charge of their inventory and saying, you're in charge of the inventory, you're to do the counts, and you're to spend some time every week placing the orders. That removes you know, one of the more complex functions from the business from the owner's own responsibility set. And it's by delegating responsibilities and then having a system for people to properly manage it and being able to understand if it's being done or not and to hold people accountable to the fact that they're responsible for these things. This is what we mean by building a system so that others can start to take over these different responsibilities. That's the only way someone who owns a business is going to be able to get into a position where, to your point, they can go away for a week and things are still functioning the way they should be. Absolutely. Or even better, take a whole month off. And in some people's eyes, that is majorly scary. But as we know, we need to look after ourselves. And if we don't look after ourselves first, the airlines have got it perfectly correct, then we can't look after anybody else. So systems is obviously a, a big thing. So what about people that say, I'm the only one that can do that job? Well, then it's it's going to be very difficult if they ever want to try and sell the business one day because they're going to have to find someone with an exactly similar skill set who maybe is a little bit younger than them. And so when we talk about systems, let me give you another example. Um, say someone's a roofer and they do everything in their head and they manage everything on little slips of paper and they spend their days running their crews and their evenings doing quotes and writing up invoices for customers if that person decides they want to sell their business because nothing is documented, they really have to look for someone who already knows how to run a roofing business. So that's going to be someone maybe from the roofing industry who's younger than them. That's, that's a small pool of people. But if the roofer has everything systematized, if he's got Excel spreadsheets that help to calculate the quotations, if he's got systems in place to manage the delivery of goods and materials, to, to schedule the crews of where they're supposed to go, 
He's got different foremen who know, you know, what jobs they're doing on certain days of this week. That person now can demonstrate to almost anyone that he can teach them how to run the business because the tools are there. And so what he's done is created a much larger pool of potential buyers. Someone who's a postman, for example, could come and learn that that skill set because all the tools are in place. And so now we have a much wider pool of potential buyers for the business. And what this ultimately means is that a business can sell more quickly. Um, the buyer who is looking for a certain business usually has certain skills, aptitudes, or interests in that area of business. So you could have um, you know, a, a perfectly profitable flower shop and someone who's looking to buy a business who happens to be an engineer, but they're not going to buy that business because it doesn't fit with them and their interests. And they don't feel that they have the skills to maybe enhance or improve that business. The more systematized it is, the the bigger that pool of potential buyers will be. And so we're going to be able to more quickly find someone that is going to be able to be the buyer. And I've seen good businesses languish on the market, profitable businesses languish on the market for years, waiting for someone with just the right skill set, while another business that was highly systematized had more potential buyers come and take a look because we were able to demonstrate to them that even if they didn't understand everything in that business, they were going to be able to figure it out. Figure it out. This is what Michael Gerber was talking about in the book, E-Myth, yes. where he talked about creating your business as though we're a franchise. Yep. And that's one of, the, um, one of the appeals that franchise systems are able to offer to people in the public is they can say, we can teach you how to run this business. You don't need to have any um, skill or knowledge. If, if, if it really is a skilled trade, like if you're talking, for example, an architect or some kind of engineer, for example, then yeah, they're probably going to have to have someone from that field come and buy the business um, if they haven't grown to the point where they have other people in the firm doing the work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, very big fan of Michael Gerber. And we have um, a gentleman in Australia called um, David Jennings, and he set up um, Systemology and actually went and uh, worked for um, Michael for a little while. And Michael did the forward in the, the systemology book. So, yes, systems is a um, a huge tool that people overlook because they think it's too hard or it's not for me or it's only big businesses. So um, definitely the first place to start. So if we got our system sorted and we're starting to make it into a business, not just a key person dependent or have bought ourselves a job, what else should we be thinking about to make our business something that somebody else would like to buy? Well, we want to consider the position or the point of view of the buyer. So one of the things that I often find is that when business owners are operating their business, they like to empathize with their customers. They think about their customers, what their customers want, what their needs are, what they're willing to pay, et cetera. And through understanding the needs of their customer, they build a more successful business. They're better able to serve their customers. But for some reason, Kathy, when people want to sell their business, they all of a sudden become very self-centered. They start to think about this magical sum of money that they're going to get one day from someone, but they never put themselves into the shoes of that buyer. And the thing is, is that buyer is exactly the same as a customer. They're just buying something a little bit different. And so oftentimes I will work with sellers and they'll tell me that they've been trying to sell their business for years and they'll want my opinion on... And what their business broker's done and what the package has been put together. 
And I'll be able to show those people how no one would ever be able to afford the business that they're trying to sell at the price they're trying to sell. And so one of the things that I would challenge business owners to do is to look at your business and ask yourself, how would I buy this business if I were the buyer? And it's interesting, you know, when, um, when you go into a car dealership, for example, um, they understand this very well. They know that cars cost what? Uh, 30, 40, $50,000. Yep. And they know that people don't have this money. Yep. And so the auto dealers got every sort of financing and leasing scheme known to man all lined up there ready for you because they're ready to help solve the problem of financing so you can acquire the car. Mm-hmm. And this is the same thing for selling a business. When it comes to selling a business, one of the biggest challenges a buyer is going to have is putting the money together to do the deal. So for example, most buyers are going to have some amount of money of their own, but if you're trying to sell a half million dollar business, the buyer is unlikely to have half a million dollars because a person with half a million dollars is trying to figure out how to buy a $2 million. (laughs) Absolutely. Everyone is trying to leverage their way to get something bigger. So the the person who's going to buy that half million dollar business, maybe they have 80 to $150,000. Maybe there are some assets in the business that could support some financing. Maybe there's some vehicles or inventory that may be financeable through a bank line of credit, something like that. Mm -hmm. So through examining the assets of the business, we might be able to determine, maybe even by talking to our banker, if a bank would be willing to lend something against those assets. And if it's a good profitable business, it's going to have something that we call goodwill. It's going to have a value in excess of those tangible assets. And this is the challenging part because the bank can't use goodwill as collateral. They can't repossess goodwill. There's only one party that can actually finance goodwill, and that is the seller. Mm -hmm. And so almost every deal that I've ever worked on um, anywhere in the world, and I work with people all over the world, has involved some degree of seller financing. And it always amazes me when I talk with sellers that they have never heard about this before. But it, it's perfectly normal that when you sell a business, you're going to make a deal with which will involve getting some money on closing day from the buyer and perhaps from a bank if there's financeable assets. But part of the money is going to be paid to you over time. And what this means is as a seller, it's critical that you choose the right buyer who's got the right attitude and the right skills to take over and run the business. It's critical that you train them properly and that you stick around even beyond some kind of transition period as making yourself available as a coach or an advisor to be able to answer the phone calls of this person and give them some guidance if they ever need it. Because really what that seller financing note does is it aligns the interests of the buyer and seller together and it allows the seller to actually get paid for the business. But but again, we're talking about empathy here with the buyer. What does it do for the buyer? It, it does a lot more than that, Kathy. So as a seller of a successful business, you own the business, maybe you own your cars, your home, a vacation home, retirement accounts, all kinds of things that you own. The business is one asset. The buyer is likely going to take their savings, maybe draw money from retirement accounts, draw money from their home equity, maybe borrow money from family members, borrow money from a bank borrow money from the seller. They're going to borrow all this money from all these people. They're going to put all those funds into one basket and they're going to hand it to you. It's a very risky and dangerous feeling kind of scenario. And for a seller to say, hey, Mr. Buyer, I believe in you. In fact, you remind me of myself 20 years ago. 
and I think you've got the skills and I think you've got the talent and I believe in you so much, I'm going to lend you part of the money too. And I'm going to be around to coach you and guide you. It allows the buyer to have confidence that what they're doing makes sense. It also can function as a way for that buyer to manage risk. You know, when you buy a house, you can have it inspected. When you buy a car, same thing. But when you buy a business, there are so many moving parts, it's impossible to do a thorough and completely accurate due diligence. So a lot of these seller finance notes have a clause in them that say they're subject to offset in the case of material misrepresentation. What does that mean? It means if the seller lies to the buyer in the in the run-up to the acquisition, the buyer's got recourse now to be able to do some offsets if there's some damages to the buyer. It's like a guarantee that what they've been told is true. And so this, again, gives the buyer confidence that what they're doing makes sense, that they don't have to worry that perhaps they're being the victim of some kind of fraud, that they know there's a, a an emergency valve or a release valve in the case of something going really, really wrong. And so this seller note with all these features gives the buyer the confidence to pay a fair price. Yeah. And it gives the seller the ability to actually be paid a fair price. So it allows the market to function properly. If we didn't have these notes, here's what would happen is the buyer would suddenly become worried about all these potentially scary, bad things that might happen. And then they would want to discount the price to make themselves feel comfortable with the risks. And so this methodology that has evolved over time, and, and it happens everywhere in the world. Yes. Um, yes. This is one of the key things that that sellers can do in preparation for having someone come along to buy the business. And if you know that you're going to be selling the business one day, and you know that the buyer's biggest problem is financing, another thing that you might want to do is when you expand through acquiring equipment, machinery, new vehicles, et cetera, when you arrange the financing for those things, ask the question, hey, if I sell this business, would a buyer be able to assume this financing program? And so a seller could, if they understood that they're in the run-up to a period where they might sell the business, could actually start to grow the business in a way that becomes even more transferable to the buyer and actually be able to, to hand over some of the financing tools that they themselves put into place when they were growing the business. Fantastic. So that really means that when you are thinking or think you are going to think about selling, you do need to forward plan that. It's not a case of deciding that, okay, you've had enough, you're going to sell tomorrow. You do need to put those steps into place. You do need to do a thorough audit of all your systems, how your business is running and the potential growth that you've got. And I loved about the, the seller um, guarantee as well. I'm sure that's a real benefit to the clients too, because if you're looking after your customers and you know that being paid is going to depend on them staying and being happy, then your mindset around that's got to be quite different as well. Absolutely. And, and you know, most of the time when small business, you, you made a good point about, you know, deciding I'm going to give up, I want to sell. Um, you know, the five biggest reasons why small businesses go up for sale, uh, the biggest one is burnout, fatigue, and boredom. And then there's divorce, poor health, the need to relocate. And the last one is retirement. And so if you, if you look at that list, 80% of the reasons why small businesses go up for sale are not planned. No. And so for that reason, you really need to start thinking about your business from the point of view of, of creating something that is always ready to be put up for sale. 
And the, the bonus is that when you implement all these systems and processes, you actually end up with a business that's easier to run and can actually be more resilient if you need to step away for a while. I've met all kinds of business owners who got their business prepared for sale and then something happened. Maybe their spouse became ill or, or they had to go somewhere and they were able to depart for extended periods of time and they didn't have to sell because they had everything in place. They were able to keep things running just by checking in from afar. Uh, and they had all the people in place doing the things that they needed to do to keep things going. And increasingly, I mean, I live in Canada. I'm, I know more and more people that own businesses who are setting things up so they can run them for part of the year from warmer climates, you know, during, <laughs> during our winter. Absolutely. So, I believe it's um, something like negative 41 degrees Fahrenheit. I, I'm sorry, negative 41 degrees Celsius there today, um, and it's snowing, whereas here in Australia, we're hoping for 32-ish degrees um, positive. So for our American um, friends heading towards that, the nice 100 because it is summer down here, down under, and we yeah. love it. <laughs> <laughs> they stir me up when it's wintertime for us and summer there, but we don't get the snows and the the cold um, well, we think it's cold, but not the cold that you guys have. So we digress. <laughs> so, yes, perfect. And I, I think that's a, a real thing about getting your business ready to sell. And then you have the choice of not selling um, if you don't want to. It's almost like getting a, a home ready to sell where you go and you you do all the repainting, you redo the carpets, you, you get it absolutely perfect to sell and then you go, hey, I actually don't mind this house. I, I don't think I'll sell it after all. So I think setting a business up to sell is um, a similar sort of thing. Quite often once it's running smoother and you've got rid of all those bottlenecks, it can be a case of that you don't actually need to sell it anymore. The, the burnout and the boredom um, may have now dissipated. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've talked about systems. We've talked about making sure that we're not key person dependent. We've talked about looking at it from a, a buyer's perspective and making sure that you have those seller um, notes. Is there anything else we should be looking at to make sure that our business is something people would like to buy? Yeah, one of the, you know, it's, it's um, I actually have a, a free download that people can get on my website it's a PDF. It's 12 things to do before you consider selling your business. And one of the things that I often caution people against is the commingling of different businesses in one entity. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, if you own a dry cleaners and the dry cleaner owns its own property, um, you may think you're in the dry cleaning business, but you're actually in two different businesses. You're in the dry cleaning business and you're in the commercial property uh, rental business. You just happen to be your only tenant. The problem with this is that dry cleaners and commercial properties are valued in very different ways. And so one of the things that that buyers will do when they look at your businesses are going to separate these activities through a process called normalization. And often I'll meet business owners who are quite surprised at the results of the normalization. So if you own a dry cleaners and it has a profit of $100,000 a year, you might think you have a pretty good business. But if that property should normally command a rent of $60,000 a year, 60,000 of that 100 actually belongs to the building. And yes. it's what gives the building value. And your dry cleaners is really only earning 40. And so you might realize at that moment, hey, my dry cleaning business actually isn't performing that well. 
What I would tell you is that the capital invested in the real estate is subsidizing a poorly functioning dry cleaners. Yes. Because without that subsidy, we would all know that just how poorly it's performing. Now, that's a rather simple example. And the way that we normalize it is by putting a, a market rent adjustment on the income statement of the dry cleaners. But I've run into people who have multiple business functions all operating within the same financial statement because they've got a bunch of different things in the same entity or same corporation. Mm -hmm. And so the way to handle it is you need to be able to demonstrate to a buyer what are the incomes and expenses related to these different functional areas. And that may mean sorting out your chart of accounts with your accountant so that you have multiple income lines, multiple cost of goods sold lines, and expenses broken out into the different functional areas of the business so that if you're doing multiple different types of businesses in the same entity, when a buyer comes to look at it, they'll be able to easily sort things out. Um, I see I see this quite often, you know, in long-lived companies that have been in one business and then another business, and they're still dabbling in one thing while they're doing something else. Yep. And so yeah. you the clarity and and ease of understanding is paramount. And understanding what your your goals are and your plans are. So I'll give you a quick example. Um, I, I speak with a lot of business owners who may have multiple income lines on their income statement for different types of revenue. Maybe maybe a music shop that sells instruments, um, accessories, and does lessons. Mm -hmm. So maybe they have three different lines of, of income but their cost of goods sold will all be mashed together into one line. Yeah. And I'll, yeah. I'll ask them, what is the gross margin on the instrument sales? And they can't tell me. No. They can tell me what they aim for when they price the instruments, but they can't confirm that's really what they're getting. And of course, once you mix in end of season sales and promotions and all this other kind of thing, it's hard to know. And if the costs are changing and you're not adjusting the prices on the fly, then your margins are also going to be affected. Yes. So I've had people sort out their cost of goods sold line to match the different lines of inventory and become really surprised to see that they are effectively not earning the gross margins that they aim for when they set their prices because of all these different things that are happening. And so that kind of clarity and insight into understanding what's going on in the business is going to be key when it comes time to do, to show and tell, to show a prospective buyer, this is what I do. This is my target margin. This is what I try to do. This is how I price things. And this is how I confirm that this is actually how the business is functioning, et cetera. Um, also getting hold of benchmarking information. It's It really shocks me how many business owners don't have any idea what the norms are for their industry as far as their different costs. And this kind of data is available out there. Um, uh, in Canada, I use Industry Canada as like an online report. You can look up industries by SIC code and you can find out the, the four different quartiles of operators in a given industry and what their major expenses are as a percentage of revenue. I'm sure the similar kind of data is probably available in Australia. And if not, you can always just go searching. Any you know Western country's data is probably going to be pretty close to, to similar. Yeah. But if you're running a you know, a restaurant, you should know what are the standard costs for food, for packaging, for rent, for other expenses to know whether your performance is in line or not. Um, just operating and hoping for the best kind of outcome each year 
is not a recipe for success. No. You have to have a greater intentionality. Um, you know, you need to make a budget for the year. What do you want to achieve so that you know if you're on track or not? And if you are expecting to make some serious gains or growth, you have to have a plan of how you're going to do that. What new types of customers are you going to have to get? What products are you going to have to push, et cetera? So that when you get partway through the year, you can actually know if you're on track or not. Fabulous. And a wish and a prayer business strategy is not the way to go. Um, I loved oh. uh, your example of the um, dry cleaning business because you might decide that you're getting out of the dry cleaning business, but you want to stay in the property business. So right. you might then decide only to sell the dry cleaning business. And yes, if it's actually propped up by your property business, you might feel that find that you don't actually have an asset to sell at all. Well, and you know, what's interesting is that I run into a lot of business owners who don't ever consider what you just suggested, you know, splitting the asset. They'll say, you know, I want to sell, I want to sell it all. And it comes from this idea, I think, that they just want to wash their hands of it and and, and walk away. But Bad pun <laughs> for a dry cleaning you, business. <laughs> if, if you insist on selling the business and the building all at once, then what you're looking for is a buyer that has not only the proper down payment for the dry cleaners, but also for the building. And so there are a lot more people out there who have enough money just to buy the dry cleaners than there are who have money to buy both. And so by insisting that a buyer buys the whole thing, again, you're limiting your pool of prospective buyers. And what this will do is lengthen the amount of time on market in order to find that person. And the more money people need to buy your business, the more savvy those people are going to be about the power their cash gives them. Yes. If 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 you need a person with 50 grand to be able to sell a dry cleaner, you're going to find lots of people like that. If you need a person with a quarter million in liquid cash to buy the dry cleaner and the building, that person knows that they're more rare. They know that there are fewer people out there with a quarter million in liquid money. And so they're going to use that knowledge and that position to negotiate more fiercely with you. Absolutely. And if it is a case that you do want to sell both, it might be two buyers. It might be a buyer for the building and a separate buyer for the dry cleaning business. What often happens is it's the same buyer, just two different acquisitions. So someone will buy the dry cleaners and be your tenant for a few years. And once they have a couple of years of financial statements under their own management, then it's much easier for them to go to the bank and talk about getting a mortgage to buy the building because now they've demonstrated that they're capable in operating the business and they can you know, prove to the banker that they should be good for the payments because they've been paying the rent the whole time. Fantastic. So if somebody's got a smaller business, so they might be just a, what we call a sole trader, a one person, and they're thinking, okay, maybe they've got some children and they're thinking a bit further ahead and thinking like in five years' time, I'd like to, to sell this business. What kind of steps should they be thinking about to do that? Well, the the number one thing is you have to answer this question. Where does the goodwill reside in my business? Is it in the name of the business or is it in me personally? Because if you're a sole trader, the, there's a good chance that most people want to do business with you. They're not doing business with whatever your brand name or your business name is. And so if you are the holder of the goodwill, it's going to be even more scary for a buyer to buy your business because they're going to be worried that all of the customers won't want to deal with them. They want to deal with you. And so what we often see in this kind of scenario is that 
you have a transition period that is longer. So selling your business may look something like this. It may look like you taking someone on to work with you and then explaining to all of your customers that you have a new colleague because of your transition plan. And the two of you may end up working together for a year or more so that all of the customers get to know the new person. And then you get to retire from the business and the new person carries on. What the terms of sale look like in that kind of scenario are often very much skewed towards the future performance. So the buyer, of course, they look at this and they say, hey, whether you introduce me to all these people or not, and whether we work together for a year or not, I'm still worried that they're not going to want to carry on doing business with me after you've gone. And so what the deal is likely going to look like is something like this, maybe some small amount of money down, and then the buyer will pay to the seller a percentage of earnings from that client list over the next couple of years after the transition. And it's almost like you're treating the seller as though they were a salesperson gathering and curating a clientele. And if the buyer were going to hire a salesperson anyway, they'd have to pay them some kind of commission. And that's the kind of framework or mindset you should have around that kind of arrangement. And so I've seen this kind of thing quite a bit in things like uh, accounting offices, mm-hmm. um, real estate, things like that in nature, where really they are personal relationships and buyers are you know, hesitant to gamble that just because someone did business with you, that they're going to do business with the new person yep. just because they're in the same office. So I guess it really is thinking about, is it basically you just have a job that it, it's tied around you personally, or is it something that you can scale up and create into an actual business where you're not the the key person and you're not the, as you say, the if, brand? If, if you can build it to the point where the customers are dealing with other people, then you've got a real business. And then a lot of these issues will sort of fall by the wayside. Um, you know, you, you think about the place where you might stop to buy gas. You don't know probably who the owner is. You know, you walk in there, different people work behind the counter. It doesn't really matter to you. You're, you're there to buy gas and other things that you need. And so that's a business where the goodwill truly does reside with the business. You know, we know where the gas station is. We know what they sell, how late it's open, et cetera. So these small businesses where it is really one person, um, you have to make a decision. Am I going to grow it into something where the goodwill will reside with the business? Or am I going to understand that in order to get the buyer what they want, it may mean that I have to wait several years and make sure that my customers want to deal with the buyer in order to get some kind of uh, a cut of whatever business is happening down the road. Fantastic. And that's, that's a part of, that's just a part of setting expectations. You know, I've met people in those scenarios who believed that their business was worth a certain dollar amount and they were holding out for a buyer who was going to come up and write a check. It's just not going to happen. None. And I think that's a a really good thing to think about. And most of the, the theme that's been running through our conversation today is be prepared and plan. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're thinking about wanting to sell a business anytime in the future, Today is the right place to start. So is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think that people looking at 
wanting to sell their businesses and wanting people to buy their businesses should be doing? Um, take a look around with a pair of fresh eyes. Oftentimes when we are in a place every day, we tend to overlook things. We get used to things that we probably shouldn't get used to. Um, an example I always give is, you know, if you're if you're about to paint a room in your home and you take off the little switch plates off the light switches and everything, uh, and then you get delayed, some, something interrupts you and you don't paint the room and the light switch plate is still missing and you start walking past it every day and, and it just starts to blend in. You don't really notice it anymore. But if a stranger comes in your home, it's the first thing they notice, right? Absolutely. And so this is what I'm talking about. If you have a, a, a place of business or even if you have a, a website or you have other materials that you share with people, ask someone to take a look with you and have a fresh perspective on what things look like. Fixing things up, making things more attractive, making things more pleasant can have a huge impact on the first impression that a business buyer will have. I remember when in my business brokerage days, I went to a buyer-seller meeting. It was in the evening after hours. The business was closed. And the buyer brought an interesting advisor with him. He brought his mother. And so the buyer and his mother came to the meeting and we went and visited the business and the buyer asked all kinds of questions about the business, its operations, how it got started, you know, what the prospects for the future were, et cetera. And I had driven there with them. And when we left the meeting for the entire drive back to my office, all his mother talked about were the different things she saw in the business that she found upsetting. And it, it set the entire tone of this person's attitude towards the business. It was you know, from a numbers point of view, you might think, well, that's silly. Why would why would that even matter? But you want to make the best impression you can on all fronts. Absolutely. If someone had the if someone had the choice between two businesses that had exactly the same cash flow, what would they base their decision on? It's all of these things that you might think of as frivolous, but it just takes a little bit of time and attention and often not much money to get things nice and shiny and looking better. Absolutely. And we all buy on emotion. And going back to the, the house analogy, when you sell a house, the first thing they say is put your coffee pot on, put out a, a fresh bunch of flowers. Does it make the house worth more? No, but it makes you feel different about the house. So True. it's the same with businesses. It's that feeling that you first get is going to make all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So this part of the podcast, David, I get to ask you five questions. Are you game? All right. What is the best advice given to you by a mentor? The best advice given to me by a mentor is to ask myself before getting into a project, if this project were to fail, what would the likely cause have been? And it can help you look at your project in a new light and maybe do it in a slightly different way that may be a little more resilient. Wow, that is a great one. I love that. Never heard that before. And resilience is definitely the flavor of the month over the last few years that we've had. So great advice. What is the biggest help that you have received since starting your business? The biggest help has probably been the people that I reach out to who agree to have me come and speak on their podcasts. Uh, 
Uh, it's a great it's a great way to introduce myself to new audiences and and to meet new people. And at the end of the day, that's how I grow my business is by finding new people that want to come and enjoy my material. Fantastic. What is the one thing that you have to do every day? You're non-negotiable. Go for a walk. I made a, a, a commitment to health a few years ago. And so whether it's rainy or shiny or minus 42 Celsius, <laughs> I get as many layers as an onion on and I go outside and I walk a circuit through my neighborhood. It goes about six kilometers and I do it at least once. When it's beautiful in the summer, I might do it three or four times. But Perfect. It's to get out and walk. And that's where I often listen to podcasts. Fantastic. And I've heard the secret to actually getting outside and doing it no matter what the weather is it depends how warm or cool you are. So if you've got all those onion layers on and you're warm, it really doesn't matter what the temperature is. It's still going to be enjoyable work. And what is your favorite business book? Oh, this is probably one you haven't heard of either before. So it's The Persuasion Secrets of the world's most charismatic and influential villains by Ben Settle. Wow. Uh, he, he, analyzes, he analyzes the communication tactics and styles of all the villains out there, you know, like the the Joker and some of the Disney villains and, and whatnot, and, and shows how some of their secrets can have a, a strong impact in your business marketing. Okay, I will look that one up on um, Audible. Audible is my favourite way to listen to um, books these days. So, yeah, definitely have to look that one up. What do you wish you had known when you started out? Um, I wish I had known just how enriching and wonderful a life of intention driven but through entrepreneurship could be. I would have started earlier. I, I always knew that I wanted to be a business person. I always knew that I wanted to be a business owner. Uh, but, you know, all of those people around you who, who give you these little worries and say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? You know, um, I just, I wish I had gotten in even sooner. And I often advise young people, you know, especially people that haven't gotten, haven't got children or aren't married yet. Really, that's the time to get into it. Be like, you've got no real world responsibilities. You may feel that you have responsibilities, <laughs> but you don't have people relying on you. And so, um, and time makes the difference. You know, um, I've been in and out of several businesses. I've owned five different businesses through my life. Two of them I had to close. So I've known successes and I've known hard times in business. And what I can tell you is that my business today would not be anywhere close as successful as it is if it weren't for the two businesses I failed at. And so all of these things serve to teach us. And the sooner that you start, the more lessons you're able to learn. Absolutely. And we learn far more from our failures than we ever will from our successes. Well, and, and it's even better, actually, if you can learn from other people's failures. Too, yes. <laughs> so you don't have to do it yourself and particularly <laughs> have that financial cost. I think that's a, a really good one. Okay, so that's a great way to um, end our chat, David. So I appreciate your time and your wisdom. Now, you did mention that you have a free downloadable. So would you like to let the SPT audience know where they can get that from? Sure. If you head over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, um, there's a tab called free. And if you look there, you can find that free download. 
uh, 12 things to do before you consider selling your business. All of you know the different content I create is all centered there on the blog. There's hundreds of videos on my YouTube channel. And if you're interested in the topic of buying, selling, financing, and managing small businesses, I would encourage people to sign up for my email list. Um, I send out emails all the time with stories and ideas and, and commentary on different things happening. Um, and, and people seem to like it. Fantastic. So to sign up for that, that's also at your davidcbarnett.com um, that's right. website. Excellent. So we'll drop that in the show notes. So we really appreciate your wisdom and thank you for reaching out and being part of Small Business Talk. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a great time. You are very welcome. And SBT audience, remember, enjoy your journey. Don't forget to subscribe to Small Business Talk podcast and head on over to smallbusinesstalk.com.au forward slash downloads for all the show notes and links to this episode. Remember, to be great, you must start. Pick one tip from today's episode, take action and implement it. Let's meet again next week at the same time and place. Until then, take action. And SBT community, enjoy your journey.